My name is Alex DeRosa, and I am one of our pastors here at New Life, and it is a joy to be with you today. If you're a first-time guest, I just want to say thank you so much for deciding to invest some of your morning with us today. If you've been here twice or 200 times or whatever, thank you so much for continuing to join in with the family of New Life. Right now, we are about two-thirds our way through our summer series called Mountain Monologues. What we're doing is looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, some of his most practical, powerful, life-changing teaching ever. And what we're doing is we're looking at how it still applies to our lives today. Over the last several weeks, I've been able to simply sit back and enjoy the messages. For seven weeks, I got to hear Pastor Chris, Pastor Barry, Pastor Kristen, and Aaron Mayauke do a fantastic job of bringing the truth and love of Jesus. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a team that is willing to dive in to God's word and say, what is he telling us and what, how can we live more like Jesus. And the reason I got to sit back for a few weeks and to listen and be challenged and to enjoy alongside everyone else is because of two things. The first thing, more importantly, is that Rachel, my wife, gave birth to our third uh, child, our third son. His name is Kai Isaiah DeRosa. And... Oh, thank you. Uh, she deserves the round of applause for that one, but thank you very much. Uh, and uh, he was born on June 10th. We have a picture of him and his brothers. We got three boys, three kids. And so Kai still, uh, he, 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 I don't know, he won't smile for pictures yet, uh, but he's there. And then we got Ezra who always will smile for a picture and Joel who will refuse to look at the camera every time we point it at him. Uh, but those are our, our boys. We love them so much and, and it's so exciting to, to have those guys in our life. And so I was able to invest a couple of weeks with them really intentionally. And also over the last several weeks, I was on a mini sabbatical. Last year, Pastor Chris encouraged, challenged me to schedule a month away. And we didn't know at the time that Kai was going to be born during that time, but it ended up being a blessing. And, and so we scheduled four weeks where I got to go away and learn and to, to read and to meet with ministry leaders and to prepare for the time in 2024, in January, where I will become our next lead pastor. And it was incredible. It was a wonderful time to, to help and to, to, well, to help not only myself, but us as a church family to see what God has in store for us. I'm so thankful that Pastor Chris, our lead pastor, pushed me to do that. And when I was away, one of my favorite activities was simply to go on a hiking trail and pray. And listen to God. I tell you what, the first couple of days of that, I really fought against it. Like I fought against the need to be busy because I'm always just so busy. But I would be walking and praying, walking and praying. And God kept saying, just be with me. And on one of those days, he imparted this phrase. I had heard it before, but didn't really understand it. The phrase is beautiful resistance. He had planted it in my heart and it was kind of trapped in a sort of way where I needed to deal with it. What did this mean? So I started praying, God, reveal what is the beautiful resistance. And you might have heard that phrase right now and think that one of those two words feels more comfortable than the other. Maybe you lean more towards beauty and all that it conjures. Or maybe the resistance is exciting to you. And the idea of going against the evil, it's kind of like Luke Skywalker taking it to the evil empire, resistance. But really, in our walk with Jesus, we must embrace both things in order to truly live into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that he has for us. Kind of like how God asks us to live in the truth and love. How Jesus was described by his disciple John as both grace and truth. 
And so what do these two words mean? Beautiful resistance. Well, beautiful refers to all the amazing gifts from God, love, joy, peace, mercy, grace, all the things that not only help us to know who God is, but point us to the next life. Point us to the fact that we weren't only created for this world, but we were created for the next one. For instance, joy. C.S. Lewis has some great writings on joy because joy was an emotion that helped convince him that God is real. And it convinced him because he started to rationalize, okay, well, we have all these things that are primal instincts. We got hunger, maybe love and fear. You could all rationalize them away as just us needing to survive. But joy is different. The only purpose joy has, C.S. Lewis contends, is to point us to God. It's a glimpse of what's to come. It's a glimpse of heaven. And so when we enjoy these beautiful gifts of God, we will not only gravitate more towards God, but will help point other people to the kingdom of heaven. It's beautiful. It's also a resistance. What does a resistance mean? Well, it is a war for God against evil. It's the understanding, once again, that we are not only made for this world, that there is a spiritual realm all around us, and that the enemy is fighting to rip souls away from God while God is drawing people to him. And our part in the beautiful resistance is to help the lost come to know God and help the found to come to know him more. It's a resistance. So together, let's let's smush those together. And this is the kind of the working definition that I have right now. Jesus' disciples are called to resist evil by waging war using the beautiful gifts of love, joy, peace, and grace. Beautiful resistance encapsulates our calling to be part of God's kingdom. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapters 5 and 6, helped us to understand how we can resist the enemy and experience God's beautiful gifts every single day. And then in chapter 7, which is where we're going to focus our attention today, specifically Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus talked about judging. And in order to appropriately understand what he had to say about judging, I wanted to share about the beautiful resistance. Because oftentimes when it comes to judging, we can do one of two things. We can completely neglect our call to help assess and to discern what is going on around us by being a lovable doorstep instead of a beautiful resistance. Or maybe sometimes we can go too much into the anger against the enemy and we can become a hateful resistance. But God has called us to be a beautiful resistance together. And so as we walk through what Jesus had to say regarding judging or not judging others, we must keep both of these themes in place, truth and love. If you have your Mountain Monologues booklet, we are on page 43. And we're going to start with verse 1. And it's going to be on the screens, or you can look it up on your phone, or if you have your Bible with you. But before we dive into that, would you please pray with me? Dear God, thank you so much for being here right now. I pray that you will work in and through all of us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will just move through this place and speak to us and draw us closer to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to verse 1 of chapter 7 of the book of Matthew. It says, Do not judge that you will not be judged. Do not, it's simple. Do not judge that you will not be judged. It's a present active imperative verb that is the word 
judge. I probably said that opposite. The word judge is a present active imperative verb. What that simply means is that it could easily be translated to Jesus saying, stop judging. He has this big crowd. He's on a mountain in Israel, a real hill in Israel. A large crowd comes and, and these disciples are in front of him. He's teaching them. And then after telling about this righteous living, he kind of switches gears and says, stop judging. The Greek word there is krino, which is where we get complaining and criticizing. He's telling the people to stop judging. And I'm wondering, why would he say that? And one of the reasons must be because as people, we kind of like to judge. It's just sometimes part of our nature. You might actually be thinking right now, did, did what Alex just say ring true? And in fact, you would be judging what I'm saying. We like to judge. I have a sister, her name is Crystal, she's a couple years younger than me, and while we were in college together, I commuted and I got to hang out with my sister a lot, and one of our favorite activities was watching reality TV competition shows, and I know you might be thinking that's pretty lame, well, it probably was, but it was pretty fun as well, and one of our favorites was Top Chef. Top Chef is a competition where people would make meals and then bring it to judges. The judges would eat them and then say, this is a good dish or not. And then some people were eliminated. Eventually, you had the best chef around and they would win. Well, on our couch, we would sit there and we would judge literally everything that would happen. We had our favorites. We had our, our, the people we didn't want to win. And we would say things like, you call that a deconstructed foie gras, not knowing what a foie gras meant or what deconstructed food really entails. But we made sure that we had our opinions and we let each other know about them. And it's funny to think about that because my culinary expertise still to this day kind of circulates the families of sandwiches and grilling. And if it could be one of those, I can do it. And if not, I cannot do it. And that's just, I, that's, that's my skill set. Even before I met Rachel, my, my wife, I would be invited to, to get togethers and people would say, hey, why don't you bring some food along for everyone to share? And to do that, I would go to the store and I would buy some Oreos and I would bring them with me. And people would always be like, you brought Oreos as a dish to share? And say, hey, if you don't want Oreos, I'll bring them home, okay? Uh, I, like, I like the Oreos. They always got eaten, so I don't know what the big deal was. But now that uh, I'm married to Rachel, we actually cook something nice and bring it. I don't know how to cook, yet I still felt like I could judge these people that were making dishes on TV that I couldn't smell or taste. I didn't even have the information available to appropriately judge it, but I still felt like I could. And we do this all the time. Before we have all the information, we jump to conclusions. We fill in the bits that we don't know with our own feelings and our own experiences, and then we make a judgment call and we discern something without actually having the ability to do that. And Jesus warned us against that type of judgment. In fact, in Matthew 7, 2, he said, For with whatever verdict you judge, you will be judged. And with whatever measure you measure, it will be measured against you. He's basically saying is that if, I, if I'm judging these people on Top Chef, I, might, I better be okay with them coming to my house and judging me as well, which I am not okay with that. So I probably should stop. This is one of the most misunderstood and misquoted parts of God's word. A lot of times people make it kind of a blanket statement of we should never use judgment or discernment with people around us. But that's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying that we must not judge with a self-righteous 
uh, ego or arrogance when we go and interact with other people. We must not approach people with pride. We must do it with humility. In fact, we could summarize it this way. Don't judge others until you're prepared to be judged by the same standard. And then when you exercise judgment toward others, do it with humility. So Jesus tells the disciples and really the crowd, stop judging. Why? Because we judge. Also, because he had a front row seat to seeing the Pharisees in action. The Pharisees were religious leaders that by all standards of living, they did right things. They were righteous in their own eyes. And when they did right things, it allowed, it made them puff up. And they started to think that they were better than everyone else. And Jesus, in chapters 5 and 6 of Matthew, went through some very specific ways that we are to live a righteous life. In fact, he gave some very radical ways that we are to live a righteous life that the religious leaders never even achieved. For instance, Jesus talked about marriage. And in his talk about marriage, he said a man and a woman should be together forever. This was radical. If you understand the Greek and Roman cultures back then, they didn't care about that. They said, yeah, you could be with whoever you wanted at any time. It doesn't really matter. Even the Jewish culture said you could have as many wives as you want. And whenever you want to get a divorce, just kind of choose to get rid of one of them and bring in a new wife. And Jesus said, no, that's not how it was designed. A male and a female forever together. And It was radical then, and it's frankly radical today. We look at what Jesus had to say about revenge. The Greeks and the Romans, if you did something wrong, you could be killed. The Jewish people, they even embraced eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And Jesus said, no, you know what's better than that? Loving your enemy. You know what's better than that? Forgiving over and over. If someone asks you for one thing, give them two things. Be extra loving and kind and humble. It was radical then, and it's still radical now. The writer S.K. Weber did this great research on the book of Matthew, and in it, he said this. He, Jesus, had been challenging the people to rise above what had had been wrongly considered the ultimate height of righteousness, pharisaical self-righteousness. In fact, Jesus challenged them to perfection. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, challenged us to live perfect as his Father is perfect, And when we follow what Jesus said, he knew that there would be a temptation of pride that would come along. That once we start living righteously, we'll have this desire to look around and say, I'm living more righteous than you are. I'm doing this and you're doing that and I am better than you. And he's warned us against this. So what do we do to combat that? Well, we must understand appropriately who God is, who we are, And who other people are as well. And we could do that through today's next step. It summarizes all of this. Or not next step, sorry, our taken point. The one point this message is all about. And it's this. We are all fallen people in need of a Savior. All of us. We're all fallen people. And we need Jesus as our Savior from sin and death. Why? Because even when we do all the right things, we're still sinners saved by grace. And when we listen to everything that Jesus commanded us to do, it's only because that he lives in us and the Holy Spirit can do more than we can think or imagine through us. And if we, when we give our lives over to Jesus, when when we become new people, it's not because of anything we have done. It's because Jesus died and rose again for us. So therefore, the life of a disciple of Jesus must be defined by humility and not pride. 
But what do we do? How do we live this out? Jesus clarified Matthew 7, 3 through 5. He said, and why do you look at the splinter, the one in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the beam that is in your eye? Or how shall you say to your brother, permit me to cast a splinter out from your eye, and behold the beam in your eye? Hypocrite. First, cast out the beam from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to cast the splinter from your brother's eye. Once again, we don't see a blanket statement saying never discern anything, never use judgment appropriately. Instead, he gave us some guidelines of how to appropriately judge with humility. And we can summarize what Jesus was saying this way. Jesus commanded his listeners to help their brothers and sisters with the speck in their eye, which means to exercise judgment concerning another person, but only after we take the log out of our eyes. This is one of my favorite analogies of all time that Jesus gave, because it comes from, it must come from his experience as a carpenter. His mother, Mary married Joseph, a Joseph, a wonderful guy who once he found out that Mary was pregnant, still married her, believed what the angel had told him, that Jesus is the son of God and that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And, and Joseph, by trade, was a carpenter. So I could imagine that this probably happened. There was probably a moment where Jesus and Joseph were interacting and someone got a splinter, a speck of sawdust in their eye, and you'd go over and you would help them out. And Jesus gave us this hilarious image to think about if we had this log sticking out of our eye, how could we possibly help our neighbor? If we would go over to them while they had the splinter in their eye, we would smack them in the head with our log. Or if we turned away and tried to help, we would just be poking them in the eye. There's no way we could help them either way. And so Jesus was saying, we can't do that. And in a spiritual sense, we can't do it either. In a spiritual sense, we must deal with the sin in our lives before we go to those around us. You see, if we don't deal with our sins, we can't appropriately help brothers and sisters struggling with their sins. So God has called us to go to him first and allow the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, to move in us, to bring up the sins in our lives, and then to remove them. And how do we do that? Not by our own strength, but by his. You see, the Holy Spirit reveals and removes sin from our lives when we submit ourselves to God. When we submit ourselves to him, he'll let us know the ways that we're living that aren't of him. And then when we give those to him, he will remove them. It's not always pleasant, but he will continue the good work that he started in us. The apostle Paul told that to the, the church uh, in the uh, Philippi, that he will continue refining us to look more and more like his son. So we do that first, and then once we give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit, we can appropriately help our brothers and sisters in the faith. But how do we do that without a judgmental attitude? How do we appropriately judge without that attitude that generally goes with it? Well, there's three steps, and there might be more, but there's three steps that I know of. The first step is this, we go in love. We go in love. God is love. And so he's told us to go and understand what, who our neighbors are. We're all sinners. Who we are and who God is. And when we do that, we can appropriately love those around us. Apostle Paul said this to the church in Rome to help us understand who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And his standard, his glorious standard, is perfection. So we must understand that Jesus, he's the ultimate judge. We, our role is simply to help guide people back to him. And how do we do that? Through love. 
Love was meant to overcome evil, was meant to conquer evil. And with the beautiful weapons God has given us, with love, joy, peace, mercy, we're able to resist the enemy for God and for those that are around us. So we go in love. What else do we do? Well, we can go to the offender directly. When someone sins against us or we know that they have sinned and they trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we go directly to them might be an impulse of ours to, instead of going to them, go to someone else. Sometimes that's what we do. We go and we talk about, did you see their sin? Did you see what they were doing? And we, we like to gossip, but that never helps. Instead, Jesus gave us very clear instructions to go directly and privately to that person. In Matthew 18, 15, he helps clarify what we're to do by saying, if another believer, this is Jesus talking, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. When I was in college, I had a roommate, and, and our roommate and I one time had midnight pancakes together. As you do in college, you can get away with stuff like that in college. And as we were eating some pancakes, he confronted me about the way that I was living. I was at a Christian school learning to be a youth pastor, and I had completely walked away, for all intents and purposes, God and the plan that he had for my life, besides staying in school. And he confronted me, my roommate. He said, man, you're not going to church, you're not reading, your attitude, your language, all of it doesn't point to Jesus. You're not living like Jesus. And I, I fought with him. I was angry with him. I didn't like that. It was uncomfortable. It was hard. I didn't want to hear that from him. But he continued to persist and eventually, I relented, and I talked to him about it. I talked about the hurt that I was dealing with, gave it to Jesus, and I was brought back into the fold of the believers. I mean, I mean, I was always a believer, but I was brought into this fold where I can grow closer to Jesus once more. And I'm so thankful for my roommate that he did the challenging and uncomfortable thing. And he reminded me that when we're in this resistance, we're not in this resistance alone. We're called to be in this beautiful resistance alongside one another to help, to build up, to challenge, to bring back. And so we go and we confront someone directly. And then if that doesn't work, Jesus gives us some instruction. We take others with you. You take others with you. If at first it doesn't work, you go to one person, you go with love, you tell them about how they aren't living the way that God has designed them to live. They don't listen, you take others with you. We know that because Jesus continued in Matthew 18 saying, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So you go with other people. And it's important to pick the right people. You don't pick people that are going and they're just excited to pile on or to gang up on someone. You go with people that are willing to go in love, that want to go for the right reasons, to help someone come back to God. So you go to help shake someone out of the fog that they're in. And it is a fog. See, our enemy's clever. Our enemy oftentimes convinces us to leave God without us even knowing about it. Oftentimes it's a slow drift that brings us away from God. And then one day we wake up and we're different and we don't even know about it. Political scientists say that this is a result of soft power. There's different powers. There's hard power, soft power. Hard power, you can see, it's military might. But soft power is a manipulation or a coercion that happens without us being aware of it. 
For instance, in our society right now, the media does this all the time. You might watch a movie or a TV show, and what they'll do is they'll sprinkle in things that they want people to conform to. And if we're not careful by reading God's word or praying or being in community with other believers, we'll fall victim to it because we're human. We're sinful. We're all falling short of God's perfect standard. And that's why we need to allow brothers and sisters of the faith to be able to come into our lives and convict us to come into our lives and help us understand when we fall short. It's also important for us to understand that when Jesus told us these instructions, he was talking about going to other believers, to people who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is because when someone doesn't have a relationship with Jesus and they sin, they're simply acting in their nature. They're acting as as someone who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so we go and we confront people that that do know Jesus to bring them back, but we interact with people who don't know Jesus a little differently. We maintain the truth and the love, but we understand where they are. Now, again, we maintain truth and love. So we don't love the people who don't know Jesus by accepting their sin and and encouraging it and supporting it. We stand firm on the truth, but we do it with love. It's, again, beautiful and resistance. Our world has this definition of love that's very different than the definition that God has for us. The definition that the world has for love is to go and accept and embrace everything that the world uh, does, anything that anyone wants to do, but that's certainly not love. Even our world has this desire to say, hey, you do you, and hey, whatever your heart wants, do that. And it's funny because recently I learned that that phrase, like, just follow your heart, be true to yourself, comes from the Shakespearean play, Hamlet. It was written in the original uh, play. The, the word was, to thine own self be true. And it's funny, because I don't know if you know this, I didn't at the time, but the person who said that in the play is referred to as the fool. So what an irony of our time, that the foolish words are the ones that we're using as this rallying cry. So instead of pretending to love someone, we got to really love them. And if you want to love people, we must be willing to stand for the truth. Why do we need to stand for the truth? Because Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he tells us that the truth will set us free. And only through the truth will we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and become the people that he's designed us to be. So we share the truth and the love. When we don't do both of those things, we are poor representatives for Jesus and his word. St. Augustine, around 400 AD, said it this way. If you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. To follow God is to follow him entirely, completely, with everything that he said. And Jesus died and rose again for our sins to be removed, not so that we can continue to dwell in them. So we stand against sin, we wage war against evil for God, but we do it through love. And how do we really love each other? Well, Paul said this to the church in Rome, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. So pretending to love someone is encouraging them in their sin, which ultimately pulls them away from who they were created to be, pulls them away from the kingdom of heaven. But really loving someone is stepping out of our comfort zone to help guide someone to Jesus. It's more difficult, but it's true love. 
So Jesus gives us all these warnings and then he ends this portion of the Sermon on the Mount by saying in Matthew 7, 6, do not give that which is holy to the dogs nor throw your pearls before the pigs lest they shall trample them under their feet and having turned, they tear you to pieces. Jesus reminded us that we have a responsibility to appropriately assess those around us. When he said what is holy or pearls, he was referring to the truth, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. When he was talking about dogs and pigs, well, you got to understand that back in that culture, dogs were wild scavengers and pigs were the most unclean animals. So what he was saying is that we must not go and continue to push the gospel, the good news of Jesus, against someone that is actively against the good news of Jesus, someone that is defiant and someone that is angry with what you're presenting. You instead, you kind of switch gears and you show love. We can summarize it this way. To persist in sharing with a resistant person, waste time and energy, it can also destroy a relationship that might prove fruitful later. This doesn't mean we ever stop loving people. We don't ever stop giving people opportunities to know about Jesus, but it does mean that we accept the reality that it seldom works to convince someone that is antagonistic against the gospel by arguing, by shoving it down someone's throat. I learned this a couple of years ago firsthand. There was someone that contacted me because he had gone online, found our website, and discovered some things in our statement of faith that he disagreed with and wanted to make sure that I knew that he disagreed with it. So he, he walked through some of these things, and in our conversation, he started to antagonize. There's no better word to it. I think he was just trying to get me angry at different points. I didn't know that at the time because I just wanted to argue. I know the truth, and I wanted to share the truth. So he said at one point, like, well, Jesus is cool with sin. He's God, but he's cool with sin. I said, no, that doesn't make sense. Here are God's words showing that he hates sin. We just have this portion from Paul even reminding us to hate what is evil. And he said, okay, well, fine. You know what? I don't actually think Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is simply a prophet. And I said, well, no prophet claimed to be God, so he's not a prophet. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or a lord. That's what C.S. Lewis contends, and I agree with it, so we have to make that choice. He said, okay, fine, fine, fine. I actually don't think Jesus existed at all. And I said, wait a second. You went from God to prophet to not at all? I mean, historians, Romans, and, and Jewish historians, and we get to, um, we can go to intellectual criticism that, that they look at all of the texts from the time. He existed. And he said, yeah, I don't, I don't really think so. And I ended up bringing this argument to Pastor Chris and said, what do I do? How do I convince him? Like, what's the next bit of knowledge that I need to, to push forth? And Pastor Chris gave me the swine, or the, the pearls before swine advice. He said, stop trying to argue with him seldom works. And so I went back and I switched gears. And instead of continuing the argument, I started to show love. And I found out that this person was hurting. And that makes sense. Hurt people hurt other people. And so he had something going on in his life that, that was making him angry at the church and God and in turn me. So I ended up, we had a good conversation. We agreed to disagree. He knew the truth that I believe. And he knew that I loved him. And at the end of the conversation, it was healthy. A couple months later, he even reached out to me and we had a pleasant conversation again. And I pray that he comes to know Jesus. But it was a reminder that if we forget who other people are, who we are, and who God is, we're not going to be able to engage appropriately in this beautiful resistance. We're going to either lean one way or another. 
or kind of be too much in the resistance or too much into the beauty, but we need both of them to really understand who God has created us to be, that truth and the love, the grace and the truth. And we can do that every day as we interact with other people. We can do that through today's next step, which is I will share truth and love with all I encounter this week, with everyone. What does this practically mean? This might mean that there's someone that you need to disagree with, but you gotta do it in love. You still love that person even though you disagree with it because you stand on the truth. This might mean that you have a brother and sister in the faith that is doing something against God's will that you need to go to them privately and in love and convict them of the truth. This might mean that you've already done that and so you need to bring other people with you to go and care for that one that won't listen to reason because they're still stuck in that fog. But all of this starts by handing our lives over, submitting our lives to the Holy Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to live and move in and through us. And if you are here today and you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, which is a gift that we're given once we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're here at New Life, we say it's as simple as A, B, and C. We First, we admit that we're sinners. We say, God, I fall short. We've talked about it already. We all fall short. And we need Jesus as our rescuer from sin and death, our Savior, We believe in Jesus as our Lord, our owner, our master, our king, and our savior. And we confess, we confess our sins, that we fall short, and that we need Jesus to come and forgive us. We ask for that forgiveness, and he'll grant it. Then we ask to live with the Holy Spirit and commit to living with him, and he will guide us every day and keep refining us into the image of his son. As Jesus called us to be perfect, he'll continue to make us into that image until we see him face to face. So right now, what we're going to do is we're going to pray. We have an opportunity, and if you're in here and you've never trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I'd encourage you to make this decision today. I'm going to lead the prayer, and I encourage you to pray alongside me. But use your own words in your own mind and your own heart. Talk to the God of the universe who's here right now and who loves you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for being here in the room. I thank you for loving us, even though... We have our sin, God. You sent Jesus to die and rise again for each of us. Pray that right now that you'll hear the prayer of those that are in the room that don't know you yet as Lord and Savior, but would like to. Hear us as we pray. Dear God, I believe you are the one true God and that your son Jesus came and died and rose again for me. I admit I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins and bring me into your family. Help me to know you deeper every day. And Holy Spirit, lead and guide me. Pray this in Jesus' name. And dear God, I pray for all of us. Whatever we do this week, whoever you bring into our path, help us interact with them in both truth and love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.